0: We're dealing with hypocrisy tonight. There's a lot of hypocrisy going on as soon as Jesus arrives in Judea. They're trying everything up their sleeves to discredit him and his witness and his ministry. We are deep in this section of the opposition to the king. uh, And we are slowly ticking up towards the time of his crucifixion. We get to December of the year before he was crucified in the spring. And now, importantly, he is back in Judea for the first time since his ministry began. He has spent all of his ministry so far in Galilee or in Gentile territory. Now he is back in Judea between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, which we call Hanukkah. So here is his Judean ministry. And he starts, starts much the same way as he started his previous ministry up in Galilee he sends his disciples out to prepare the way. Now, he sends specifically 75 of his disciples. These are not the 12. The 12 stay with him. But he had other disciples, others who, who uh, traveled with him and learned from him. He sent them out in pairs of two, so that would have been 35 pairs. And their goal was to find 35 willing houses to house the Messiah as he traveled in, a, in Judea, which was not his home country. And so 35 houses were to be prepared by these faithful pairs of disciples. And the rest of the gospel accounts has Jesus staying at these various houses, one of which is the house of Mary and Martha. The commission to these 70 is also important for us to look at. We see that before they are sent out, they are to pray for the harvest. They are going to be the fulfillment of this prayer, but they are to pray for it nonetheless because it's not their activity that will fulfill it, but God working through them. So they pray for workers and then they are willing to be the workers. The next command that Jesus gives them is to go out into the harvest. He warns them that there will be wolves where they go. They will be opposed, it may be dangerous, and perhaps this is why he sends them in pairs of two. He also tells them not to carry any wallet, any purse, or any shoes. Now, this probably does not mean not to wear shoes, but it means not to bring an extra pair of shoes. But it does mean not to bring any wallet at all and no purse at all. Their needs will be supplied by God. They are about his business, and he is going to take care of them. This parallels nicely with God's preservation of Israel in the wilderness, That whole 40 years where Israel was in the wilderness waiting to go into the promised land, their shoes never wore out and their garments never wore out. This was the divine uh, providence of God. They're also told to greet no one. Now this might seem strange to us since their goal is to go and find homes to stay in. They're not to dilly-dally on their way trying to find a home. Rather, God is going to show them the home. They're not to go and try this home and try that home. No, God is going to work in their mission and bring the work to them. As soon as they find a faithful house, they are to bless that house. More importantly, they are to stay in the first house that they arrive at. They're not to go and find a better home. This would be assessing with their own carnal nature rather than using God's provision. They're not to go and try to find something better for themselves because this would be assessing by their own means and not by God's means. God is going to bring to them the first house that they are supposed to stay at. They're also to eat whatever is offered, not to be overly picky, but also not to be overly modest. If they're given food, they're to eat it. And the exchange is that they will heal the sick. God is using believers here to bless one another. Some have an offering of lodging and food, and these disciples who have nothing to offer but their commission from God, and God is going to empower them just as he is going to provide for the homes that these disciples will stay at so that they have food to offer. Once again, we have a good parallel in the Old Testament. When Elijah stayed at the house of a Sidonian, They had very little food at that home, but God provided the food so that the Sidonian woman could provide for Elijah and for her household. And in return, Elijah did what no man could do apart from the power of God, and he resurrected this woman's son. This is the same kind of exchange that God is providing. He is using believers to bless one another. But the believers are not doing it by their own power. God is providing on both ends. As they heal the sick, they are to preach the kingdom. The reason for this healing is because the king is on earth. He is there, he is present, and while he is present, this healing is offered. But they are also to curse the faithless cities. A city that does not receive them, they are to leave it, wipe the dust off of their feet, and say, Woe to that city just as Chorazin and uh, and Capernaum had been cursed because they've received so much revelation and yet they still reject the Messiah. We also understand from these passages that there will be degrees of punishment for unbelief based on how much revelation was given to them. The more revelation that was given, such as in Capernaum, which was the capital of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, And yet they rejected him. All of those miracles weigh against them on the day of judgment. The results of sending these 70 out is joyous. In other words, they completed the mission. Their focus, however, when they come back is not necessarily that the mission was complete, but in how it was completed. They were astounded at the power that they had by the authority of Christ. And he doesn't. He he disagrees with them in part, but he agrees with them also in part. Jesus isn't always a stick in the mud, but uh, sometimes we can uh, see. Well, I don't want to say he's a stick in the mud, but sometimes you'd be tempted to think he's a bit of a stick in the mud. So here they come back, and they are overjoyed, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." Now he's going to correct their priorities. But he starts by telling them that he has even seen the final overthrow of Satan. Yes, by the authority of God as his apostles, as his sent ones, they were able to do what only God is able to do, and greater things are yet to come. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now last week we saw Jesus tell the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. And here he is talking about a future event in the past tense. We get the sense that Jesus may have difficulty with verb tenses. Either that or he is God. Only God knows prophecy so well that he can speak of it in the past tense. He was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This is reported to us as an event that he has already seen, and yet it is in the future at the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan is cast down from heaven and he will indwell the false Christ and he will wage war against Israel. Then he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. He has given them power to accomplish their task, and he's also given them divine protection. But this is not where their pride should be. Their pride should not be in their works, whether it be by God's power or not, but by that thing, which they could not ever hope to do ever. And this is to glory rather in their salvation, because this is the work that only Jesus could do. No one else could do this on his behalf. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Jesus says that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. This is the much better prize. After these 70 return, and they return having secured lodging for the next few months of Jesus' life, Jesus gives glory to God, glory to God that he has hidden wisdom from the intelligent ones and given it to the infants. Once again, this, this uh, metaphor is not about the uh, unable to learn, but rather those who are dependent on God like children. Those who depended on God for their understanding understood the Messiah when he came. Those who depended on their own intelligence did not understand Jesus when he came. And then he turns to his disciples and privately tells them how blessed they are since kings and prophets had longed to look at the things that they are witnessing and they had not been able to see it. It's at about this time that a lawyer comes and uh, tries to trick Jesus or tries to test Jesus. Luke 10, 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So the lawyer who is an expert in the law already has an idea in his head of how Jesus should answer. He's, he's measuring up Jesus to his own intelligence and seeing if Jesus is as smart as he is. But he asks this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is in a Greek tense called the aorist, which is generally a past tense or a uh, unspecified but once for all action. He is wanting to know what once-for-all action he can do to receive eternal life. Now, later, when a similar question is asked, what shall I do uh, to be saved, Paul is going to tell Cornelius that all he has to do, or not Cornelius, a uh, Roman centurion, that all he has to do is believe, and he will be saved. Now, the same principle is here, but this man is not actually genuinely asking a question. He's trying to trick Jesus, and so Jesus doesn't answer the question. He uses a Jewish form of teaching, and he answers by asking a question. What do you say? What is your interpretation of the law regarding salvation? And so the man answers him. The lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, this is clearly teaching salvation by works, correct? Not at all. What the lawyer did not understand was he failed to keep absolutely every single stipulation that he just articulated. How is it that you love the Lord your God? He even said with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your mind. None of these had he done. He was doing the outward works of the law. If you asked him where his righteousness comes from, he might say from the law. And he would mean from keeping the law, from doing the activities of the law. But it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews 11 tells us this very clearly. But even the demonstration of this, how do you love God, what's one way that you do that is by loving your neighbor. This lawyer tries to justify himself. Jesus says, okay, do this. And perhaps the lawyer realized that alone I can't claim salvation from because he knows he doesn't do this. So in trying to justify himself, he's trying to uh, cut himself some slack, you might say. And so he says, all right, who is my neighbor? He knows he doesn't love everyone, but maybe he loves the circle that it's necessary for him to love in order to receive salvation. So Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now this one might hurt considering the audience, the lawyer who's an expert in the law. And this Good Samaritan, we all know the story, but The first two characters were a priest and a Levite, those who were central figures in the law and who perhaps passed up this man who looked almost dead because they worried maybe it is a dead body. We don't want to touch him. We'll be ceremonially unclean. Forget love, forget mercy. We have to keep the ceremony of the law. In trying to keep the letter of the law, they actually broke the law. They forgot the greater commandments of the law justice, love, mercy, and they left him to die. And then a Samaritan of all people comes up and helps this man who they should have considered a neighbor. At the end of this account, Jesus asks the lawyer, once again using a Jewish form of teaching, asking a question. He says, So, who do you think is the neighbor? And the lawyer just can't bring himself to say, the Samaritan. He says, the man who, uh," oh, I didn't write it down here. The man who helped the man in need. So who is your neighbor? You might say it's anyone who has a need that you can fill. That's a pretty heavy requirement on this man for salvation. Any single need that this person has that you can fulfill. He knows he can't do that. His response should be to understand that there is no possible way that he, a man, could ever keep the law. There is only one man who could ever keep the law. Pretending that you've kept the law perfectly is a joke. No person on earth has ever kept the law save for one, Jesus Christ, and he is the only man who could. The law is a teacher, and it was supposed to teach them not their own self-righteousness, but God's righteousness, something that man could never attain to. The lawyer's next question should have been, who can keep this law? Instead, he's silent. Next, we see Jesus at the house of Mary and Martha. Now, this is one of those Judean houses that was prepared for them to stay at. And this family becomes quite close with Jesus and his disciples. We get to know all of these characters a little more, and they are even there uh, all the way up through his death and into the apostolic era. He goes to Mary and Martha's house. It's actually Martha's house. And both these sisters have a very different interpretation of how they are to serve Jesus. Martha is busying herself with chores in order to serve Jesus' body. And Martha is concer- or Mary is concerning herself with serving Jesus with fellowship, sitting at his feet, learning from him, listening to his words. Martha is assessing this very unique situation of having the Messiah, God himself, in your living room. She's assessing this with, without spiritual eyes. She's assessing this as just any other house guest. She is there to serve his physical needs, not his spiritual needs. And she's exhausting herself doing it. And that's telling because she's doing it all by her own efforts. This was not what God would have her do at that time. Instead, he would have her doing what Mary is doing, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him, recognizing the importance of his words. So you could say it is better to be occupied with the Messiah than for the Messiah. And Jesus tells Martha as such. And now it's very interesting that all of Jesus' disciples who have traveled with him and heard his very clear statements still didn't understand his program of death and resurrection. It caught them off guard. Even after he died, they didn't get it. They didn't realize he would be resurrected even though he so clearly taught it. And so it is extremely telling that the only person recorded to have understood Jesus' message before his death and resurrection was Mary, the one who occupied herself with Jesus' words. She sat at his feet. She understood before he died that he was going to die. And she understood before he died that he was going to rise again. And she anointed him with oil in preparation for his death. And she didn't bother going to the tomb because she knew he had risen. There was no need to go searching for him among the dead. Mary occupied herself with the Messiah. And this is why she understood what no one else understood. Now, just as earlier in this study, we saw that whatever happens to the messenger will happen to the Messiah. And we noted that what happens in Nazareth will happen in Galilee. Well, what happens in Galilee will happen in Judea. Just as Jesus was rejected in his home country, so he is rejected here in Judea. But first, Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to pray. Now, they were present, or at least Part of them, no, they were all present for the Sermon on the Mount. This was the first message that Jesus delivered after closing the apostolic group of 12. And in that message, he taught them how to pray. But here his disciples, about a year and a half later, are asking him, Jesus, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray like you. At this time in the history of Israel, They no longer prayed extemporaneously. They prayed only with with, uh, pre-written prayers. Now this has its place in worship, but this cannot replace prayer. Prayer is communicating back to God the truth that you know and the need that you have. So Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and he gives them seven steps. Six steps. Yeah. First, to address the prayer to God the Father. This is to whom we pray. This is to whom we bring petitions. We're to focus on him first. Focus on his glory, sanctifying him. Recognizing who he is in comparison to us. Then we are to pray first for his will to be done. We know that any prayer prayed outside of his will will not be answered, and any prayer prayed in his will will be answered. The first thing we ought to occupy ourselves praying is for what we know of God's will. And here, he is telling them to pray for the coming of the kingdom. This is God's will, his future plan that he has detailed for us in scripture. We have the details of what he plans to do in the future. We ought to know it and we ought to pray for its hastening. Then, they turn to their physical needs, praying for their daily bread, the provision that God has promised them. They know they can ask for this, and they know it's in His will because He has promised them that He will provide for their needs. Not necessarily their luxuries, but He will supply their needs. And then, they pray for forgiveness. This is sometimes the first thing that we pray for. Jesus puts it almost all the way to the end. We don't want to be first preoccupied with our own sinfulness. We want to be first occupied with God's glory because that puts our sin in perspective. We not only understand better the egregiousness of our sin, but when we're focused on God's glory, our minds will naturally go to the most glorious thing of all, which is the salvation that he has provided by the blood of Jesus. So by the time we're asking forgiveness for our sins, we do have confidence that when we confess those sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is family forgiveness. The first prayer that an unbeliever prays is his first prayer as a believer. Praying for forgiveness when you intend to pray for Salvation is nonsense. If you are praying, chances are you already have salvation because you understand why you're praying. Because you can't save yourself and he can. That makes you a believer. That makes you saved. If you are praying to God, chances are you're a believer. And so here praying for forgiveness is not praying for salvation. It is praying for the maintenance of fellowship within the body. This is Family forgiveness, not forgiveness for eternal salvation that you already have. The last thing to pray for is spiritual warfare, the protection against the spiritual powers of darkness. This, too, we are completely dependent on God for. There is never a time for a Christian to go out and fight spiritual warfare. There is only ever the circumstance for the Christian to withstand spiritual warfare while God is fighting on his behalf. This is a nice summary of the book of Ephesians, which ends with an excellent description of spiritual warfare. And in fact, a man named Watchman Nee wrote a book about it by this title called Sit, Walk, Stand. Stand refers to that spiritual warfare at the end of Ephesians. We're not sitting through it. We're not walking through it. We are standing while God fights the battle. And we stand secure on what he has provided. We stand knowing that he will be victorious, and therefore we are already victorious. Now we get to Judea's repetition of the unpardonable sin. Now, importantly, the unpardonable sin has already been committed. They are already committed to the judgment that it will bring them. But each individual is going to have the opportunity to make a decision about Christ, whether he is the Messiah or not, and so every city gets that opportunity as well. This is not a new offer of the kingdom, but this is a new rejection of the Messiah. And he repeats that second messianic miracle that he performed, the same messianic miracle that they rejected him for in Judea. He repeats these many times as there is a need among the people who have faith. And so here, as he repeats it, he is immediately rejected. It's very quick. They may have already been prepared by the Pharisees who were concentrated in in Judea, in order to reject the Messiah as soon as he came. Notice that these are the members of the crowd and not necessarily the religious leaders that are rejecting him. In Matthew 12 and in Mark 3, it was the Pharisees, the religious leaders who had traveled up to, Jude- to Galilee in order to reject him. Here it is the crowds themselves. They accuse him, just as the Pharisees had, of operating by demonic power. Rather than the Holy Spirit's power. In essence, they accused the Holy Spirit of being demonic power. And so they immediately ask for a sign from heaven, as if what they had just witnessed was not a sign from heaven. They are blind and they are asking for Jesus to paint with a little more color. They had already rejected his signs. What happened in Galilee happens in Judea. They reject his signs in Judea. And we see each one of these individuals aligning either with the Pharisees or with the Messiah. Jesus' response is pretty quick. He asks them, using that Cal-Wyomer technique of moving from the lesser to the greater, he asks them, If he casts out demons by the power of demons, then who do their sons cast out demons by? If the greater, more difficult exorcism, one that only the Messiah was able to do, can only be explained by demonic power, how about those lesser exorcisms? What keeps them from the accusation of being by the power of demons? The greater miracle is done by the same power as the lesser miracles. It's also interesting that they kind of sink their own ship right from the beginning, because their response is just as untenable as their theology. They are not able, or uh, it ends up getting them in a lot of difficulty as they try to explain Jesus' power being by demons And so once again, in light of this rejection, Jesus announces to Judea what he had previously announced to Galilee using the parable of the unclean spirit, that an unclean spirit had been cast out and then the man had been cleaned and tidied, but no other spirit came in to fill it. And so the demon came back and brought with him seven more spirits. The situation afterwards then worse, was worse than when it had begun. Now, broadly speaking, this is talking about first century Israel. Their preparation by John the Baptist had given them all that they needed to receive a new spirit. Alongside the giving of the king and the kingdom was the giving of the Holy Spirit. Israel itself was supposed to be regenerated because they were supposed to receive the king. When they did not, their situation became all the worse. This has many different applications, the first being Roman domination. Israel was dominated by Rome, and bringing in a new king, the King Messiah, would have necessarily overthrown that Roman kingdom. He would have destroyed all earthly kingdoms and established the Messianic kingdom over the whole world. Their situation would have been better because their king would have been ruling in Jerusalem. Instead, we see even towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth before his crucifixion that Rome's grip was tightening over Israel. The effects of the rejection were already occurring. It has a long-spanning application as well. We notice two places in scripture where demonic activity increases. The first is in the gospels and the second is in the period of the tribulation. We're told of it in many of the minor prophets as well as the book of revelation. No other time on earth's history will so many demons be present on this earth and be about their father's business, Satan. But we also notice that as Jesus was cleansing Israel of many of these demonic possessions in the first century, their state in the end at the great tribulation is going to be so much worse. In fact, they are going to have the great demon Satan himself in dwelling a man who stands over the world as a king. Their situation is far worse in the end in the great tribulation than it would have been had they received him at his first coming. It also has to do with their partial blindness, their partial hardness. Romans 11.25 explains the results of the rejection, saying, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The time of the Gentiles ends with the fall of the last Gentile empire, the empire of the false Christ. And it is not until that time that this partial hardness is removed from Israel. It is partial because the individual can still be saved, but the nation as a whole will not be regenerated until they receive Jesus, the Messiah at the end of the tribulation period. And so Paul continues, so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This could have happened for first century Israel. Instead, because of the rejection, it is postponed until the re-offer at the end of the tribulation period. Now, interestingly enough, last time Jesus was rejected up in Galilee, he had the opportunity to teach the crowd the difference between earthly relationships and spiritual relationships. He has the same opportunity again, but this does not come from his family coming to see if he's okay because the disciples told them he's acting a little loopy today. Instead, this comes from a woman who shouts out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother, Jesus, Mary, because of her earthly relationship to you. Even Mary understood that her relationship to the Messiah is far better in terms of her salvation. Jesus says, On the contrary, blessed are those who fear the word of God and observe it. We can summarize it in the often misquoted quote. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. This is teaching that the spiritual bonds are much stronger than any physical bonds. This didn't do Jesus' brothers any good. Their earthly and physical relationship to Jesus, they were all unbelievers. Until after his resurrection, they were part of judged Israel at this time. In fact, we have no evidence that anyone besides Mary and Joseph of Jesus' family were saved until after the resurrection. And so Jesus then again tells them they are getting no sign but the sign of Jonah alone, which, as we remember, is the sign of resurrection after three days. Then he once again teaches them that there will be degrees of punishment based on the amount of revelation received. Nineveh had received little to no revelation from God. They had what was present in the Noahic Bible before the dispersion at Babel. And then they had the witness of Jonah. This was enough for them to repent, to turn to God, to believe in the one true God of Israel. And so they were saved. The Queen of the South, as well, came up on a brief sabbatical to meet Solomon. And in that brief interaction, she came to believe in the one true God of Israel. She had next to no revelation. And she believed what was given to her, and she was saved by that faith. Yet Israel, which has millennia of revelation... Numerous prophets, the Messiah himself, the miracles of God, the witness of God, they rejected it all. And so Nineveh and the Queen of the South, these Gentiles, will stand over first century Israel in judgment because these Gentiles received what little information they had with faith. And Israel rejected their vast quantity of revelation because of unbelief. Jesus then gets an invite to a lunch party. Now, this is not a lunch party that any of us would want to go to. The purpose was not to serve Jesus, but to trap him, to trick him, to try to catch him saying something that they could accuse him for. This lunch party is hosted at the house of a Pharisee. And immediately when Jesus comes to dine with them, the Pharisee is surprised that Jesus is not keeping the oral law. Jesus is not washing his hands before he eats. Now, there are plenty of places that the Mosaic law tells one to wash its hands before eating is not one. This was a tradition that the Pharisees had added to the law, making it more burdensome than God had intended, and obscuring the righteousness of the law so that they missed the righteous Messiah. And so Jesus repudiates this Pharisee. He pronounces three woes against him for three specific reasons. The first is for focusing on the micro ethics of the law rather than the macro ethics of the law. He uses the example of tithing seeds, which they are supposed to tithe under under the Mosaic law. Jesus is bringing this to the issue of the law itself because. He is not accusing them of breaking the oral law because it has no bearing on them, but he is showing them you go to such extents to keep these micro expressions of the law, but they miss the righteousness of the law as a whole. They will tithe down to the very seed when they are pulling out their 10% for God, but they completely ignore the requirements for love, mercy, and justice. Their second woe comes from their self-glorification. When they go into the synagogues, they try to choose for themselves the seats of glory, the best possible place to sit. When they go into the markets, their concern is for what greetings they'll get. They want everyone to recognize them as the glorious Pharisees. Their third woe is for their hypocrisy. Jesus says that they are like hidden tombs defiling Israel. A hidden tomb, if one were to walk over it, would defile someone ceremonially under the law. But you might not even know that you walked over a place where a person was buried. This is what the Pharisees were like. They were leading people to break the law without even knowing it, because they taught them falsely. And that did not keep them from breaking the law. It led them blindly into breaking the law. Now, there's a lawyer here as well. And this lawyer tells Jesus, as if he didn't know, you know, when you ridicule the Pharisee for doing these things, you're also ridiculing us. I don't know, maybe he expected Jesus to apologize. It doesn't seem to be the fact that he expected Jesus to pronounce Three more woes on the lawyer, and in fact, these ones are a little harsher than the Pharisees. In other words, you want to go, I'll go with you. He pronounces a woe against these Pharisees for mandating their traditions on man, for elevating these traditions as if they were the word of God, and for persecuting those who would not keep their traditions, claiming that they had broken the law of God. They had broken no law of God, they had broken the law of man. The law of man that they had used to blind israel from the true righteousness of the law he also pronounces a woe for their rejection of the prophets this is the rejection of the witness of the prophets in the hebrew scriptures he says your parents put them to death and you bury them he says now they are guilty of all the blood of the prophets all the way from abel Zechariah, this works out nicely in english they are guilty from a to z of all of the blood of the prophets this was the first martyrdom in genesis and the last martyrdom in the book of chronicles which was the last book in the hebrew bible so for us it would be like saying they're guilty from everything from genesis to revelation it all is on them because They have all that revelation. They are responsible for it. And they will be judged based on the revelation they have received. And so they are guilty of rejecting all of these prophets. And lastly, he pronounces a woe on them from hiding the truth. They have distorted the law and replaced it with a man-made law. This last section is a long series of Jesus teaching various lessons. It's a very important series, though, since these lessons are what Jesus' apostles learned and then taught the church. Jesus is training them for the establishment of the church in light of his rejection in Israel. Now keep in mind that the church is at first going to be a Jewish body. He is preparing them, to create a Jewish body into which Gentiles will be grafted in. The first lesson that he teaches them is about hypocrisy. All of this hypocrisy that they have witnessed here in Judea probably leads to this very important lesson. He is going to teach his disciples not to be like the Pharisees, not to be like those who rejected Jesus because of their hypocrisy. And so they are going to first be responsible to be honest. The means never justify the ends when the means are sinful. They are never to rely on lying in order to reach the intended end. Unfortunately, we do this, sinful men that we are. We know how things should look, and we see the fastest route to it being telling someone what they need to know. That's lying. This is not how the apostles, how the disciples are supposed to operate. They operate in the realm of truth. It might be the long way around, it might be the hard way, but it is the godly way and it will build a solid foundation. They will be trusted and this is important because they are the emissaries of God. The next lesson on hypocrisy Is whom to fear they are not supposed to fear men who can only kill their bodies but they are to fear God who can take away their physical life but who could also send them to hell this is not teaching that God will send a believer to hell but in recognition that God is the one to whom fear is rightly ascribed they may be tempted to forego their witness because men threaten their lives. They should remember the life that God has given them, the eternal life that he paid for. They are not to fear man who can harm only the body. They are to fear God who can harm body and soul. God is also the object of faith. They are not to trust in their own works, their own means, but they are to trust in God, to provide for them, to provide what they need, their sustenance. They are also supposed to persevere. God is talking to saved believers and telling them how they ought to serve him. He is not teaching them how to keep their salvation. He is teaching them what to do in light of their salvation. Because they are saved, because they have been called, go and do this. They are told to maintain their witness, to confess him before men, and then he will confess them before the angels. This is looking forward to rewards. When our rewards are announced at the judgment seat, that announcement will be before the host of angels. He also tells them not to follow along in the unpardonable sin. Being that they are believers, they are safe from the eternal consequences. They will not perish eternally, though they may lose rewards. But they are in danger if they follow along with the apostate Israel, they are in danger of the physical judgments of 70 AD. I've said it multiple times before, but that is one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. Get out of Jerusalem. Stop acting like the Jews. You are Christians, the book of Hebrews. Do not follow along. In the temple sacrifices, for example, after the perfect sacrifice has been provided. We'll see that Jesus looks forward to exactly this kind of event in 70 AD in one of his statements later on. But also, they are not to fear when they are persecuted by men, when they are brought up on trial, because God will give them the words they need to say. I think no better example of this is found anywhere but in the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of that period. God gave him a very lengthy sermon that he preached and he preached all the way from Genesis to the end of the gospels, telling them exactly what they as Israel had missed, that they had missed their Messiah. He didn't come up with these words. God gave them to him. In fact, Stephen listened to all of the lessons of this teaching that Jesus taught on hypocrisy. The next lesson was on covetousness. Now this came because a man from the crowd called out to Jesus and told him to arbitrate a dispute between him and his brother. They had an inheritance coming to them and he wanted Jesus to decide how it should be divided. Now this is asking Jesus to Apply the law of Moses to them. Psalm 72 says that when the Messiah comes, he will arbitrate disputes over the law. This man recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, but he doesn't recognize Jesus' program of his first advent. Jesus is not functioning or operating at that time as the king over Israel. He had been rejected. So he is not arbitrating such disputes. He says, Who made me an arbiter? over you. The same thing happened with Moses. Moses was a judge of Israel, but not in his first advent, not in his first coming to Israel in Egypt. They rejected him. They said, who made you a judge over us? And he went away for 40 years, and then he came back and led them out of Egypt. Jesus will reign and rule as king, not from his first advent, but from his second. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach about covetousness and teaches them the parable of the rich fool who spent his wealth protecting his wealth, and then God took his life from him, and he lost everything. He had stored up no eternal riches. The lesson to learn from this is no riches that are only physical even belong to you. Only those eternal riches are true riches. God then teach, or Jesus then teaches them of the importance of being watchful. His first advent was imminent, but it was also scheduled. Had they been faithful in reading and understanding and applying literally the prophecies of the Old Testament, they would have known exactly when their Messiah would arrive. The Magi in Babylon, who had once again far less revelation, knew exactly when the Messiah was coming. But now, at his second advent, there is no revelation about when he is coming. It is an imminent return. They are to be watchful as they go about serving him in this capacity while he is away. They will be rewarded based on their watchfulness and based on their faithfulness. For the believers, they are rewarded in degrees, or they are given degrees of reward based on their faithfulness to God while Jesus is away. That is here in this church age. For unbelievers, that would be the Pharisees, who considered themselves servants of God but had no faith. Their faithlessness will be punished in degrees based on what revelation they had. And this would go for any who claim to be servants of God, but have never truly believed in him, who have never trusted him for salvation, but seek to make salvation for themselves by their own efforts. They will persecute the believers and be punished for that persecution. Since Jesus was teaching about his second advent, he reminded them of the results of his first advent. These results were not peace, but division. The Messiah would bring peace when he was received by Israel as the Messiah, but because of the rejection, he became the new point of division. Those who believed the Israel of God, the remnant of Israel, would follow the Messiah. They were his sheep and they would hear his voice. Those who did not believe, for them Jesus would become a stone of stu- stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He would be a safe haven for the believers. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 8 that talks about the Messiah becoming a point of division in Israel. And then he teaches them of the national judgment and the consequences of it for the rejection of him and he uses this term here, signs of the times. They were able to tell weather patterns and so predict the weather, but they were not able to understand the signs of the times. And so they missed the coming of Jesus. Now this term signs of the times never anywhere ever in scripture is ever used to talk about the second coming. The signs of the times specifically talk about the revelation that was given concerning his first coming. The signs of the time were Jesus' works that they rejected while he was on earth. They could have seen what he was doing, what only the Messiah was able to do. It was clear, it was present, it was right there in their faces. They weren't able to understand that, but they were able to understand weather patterns because they spent more time focused on the physical world around them than on the much truer God of the Bible. They didn't know their Bibles. They knew man's law. They did not know God's. Jesus teaches them about repentance. Jesus actually prompts this message, talking about the national judgment he has in his mind, both current events and events yet to come. And he asks them if they believe that those who were just recently killed in a massacre by Pilate, if they thought that they were worse sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem. Now they had thought this about the man born blind, that his unfortunate circumstances had come from personal sin. But Jesus is teaching them repentance because everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in Israel, because Israel had rejected the Messiah was guilty. The same consequences were coming on all of Israel. He uses two current events. The first one is this event that a few Galileans had come down to Israel, to Jerusalem, and as they were sacrificing, Pilate got a little paranoid, thought they were up to no good, and he slaughtered them in the temple. And their blood, when it spilled out, mixed with the sacrifices. Josephus records for us, and I'm sorry I don't have a slide for it, but it's in your note packets. Josephus tells us, of an exactly analogous event occurring in AD 70. When the Roman weapons flew over the temple and landed on those who were performing the sacrifices and they were slaughtered and their bodies piled up and their blood mixed with the sacrifices and ran down the stairs of the temple. Jesus is telling them that unless they repent, They are going to undergo the same fate as those whom Pilate massacred. Jesus then asks them what they think of the 18 men who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell. Now remember, the Pool of Siloam is where the man born blind went to wash his eyes after Jesus healed him. It is also where the priests went to gather the water for the outpouring of water in the Festival of Tabernacles. It appears that between that point and this, this tragedy occurred. That a tower that was near that pool fell down and killed 18 men. There is also another record in Josephus' records of the wars of Israel, where Rome weakened the base of the towers, and the watchmen who were on them fell. And it crushed those watchmen. Jesus tells them that unless they repent, they will also die in the same manner. He is teaching them not to follow along with the leaven of the Pharisees, not to believe their explanation of his miracles because they were lies, they were false. And it was leading Israel astray and Israel would come under judgment because of it. Now, this is the very last occasion in which Jesus has a conflict in a synagogue, partly because there's not much time left for him on this earth, but also because of the results. He was in the, sab- in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who was afflicted by a spirit so that her body was bent in half, and he healed her. And the ruler of the synagogue gets a little uppity about it, He scolds Jesus for healing this woman on the Sabbath. He says, six other days you get to work. This day you don't. But the ruler of the synagogue had totally ignored the greater commands of the law, which were love, mercy, and justice. They made permissions in their own law to untie the knots of their animals, to lead them to water, because these were works of necessity, but they did not consider works of mercy, works of love, works of necessity. And so their law, not God's law, their law, prohibited acts of mercy like this on the Sabbath. And so Jesus purposefully broke their law while keeping the law of God, the law of Moses, perfectly. And the people, when Jesus stood up to this ruler of the synagogue and said all that I just explained to you, They rejoiced. And then Jesus teaches them using two parables that he used last time he was rejected, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. If you want to look back at uh, notes number 11, you can see the bigger explanation of this. But the parable of the mustard seed essentially teaches that the law had grown to such a vast and monstrous size that it harbored the workers of Satan within it. And then the leaven, often referred to as the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke and Matthew, was introduced into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Bible, and so corrupted the whole Bible. It was no longer the word of God, it was the word of man that man had corrupted. The last event here is Hanukkah. This is the feast of dedication that you read about in scripture. It was not prescribed in the Old Testament, but it was predicted by Daniel when he predicted the Maccabean revolt in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. And it was given credence by Jesus when he went to celebrate it. This is a feast of Israel. Now at this feast of dedication at Hanukkah, Jesus was walking in the east portico of the temple and some of the religious rulers came up to him and said, stop leaving us in suspense. If you're the Messiah, just tell us already. And his response is, I have been telling you. I did tell you, you didn't believe me. He's basically saying, I don't know how much clearer I could be with you. But then he gives some of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. He tells the Pharisees, these religious leaders, that if they had been his sheep, they would have heard him. If they had been believers in the one true God of Israel, they would have recognized him when he spoke but they didn't. They're not his sheep. But what is his activity towards his sheep? He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the eternal security of the believer. But this passage teaches not eternal security, but double eternal security, because not only is it impossible to snatch the sheep of Jesus, out of his hands, but it is also impossible to snatch him out of God's hands. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. We are in the double grip of God the Father and Jesus Christ the shepherd. No one can take us out of his grip. All those who come to him in faith will be saved and secured eternally in him. All right. Next week, Luke 13 through 19. Get ready. John 10 through 11, Matthew 19 through 20, and Mark 10.